I'm Mark Kane with the World Economic Forum. And I'm Miriam Vogel with Equal AI. And this is In AI We Trust. We are so pleased to be joined today for our inaugural episode with Kurt Campbell, a dear friend and a true friend to Equal AI since its inception. For those of you who don't know, Dr. Kurt Campbell is the chairman and CEO of the Asia Group. He co-founded CNAS, the Center for National American Security, and his diplomatic work includes his service as Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs under President Obama. Dr. Campbell is well known as the chief architect of Obama's Pivot to Asia, which is also the title of his most recent book, The Pivot, The Future of American Statecraft in Asia. And we are so pleased for the most recent announcement that Kurt has been asked by President-elect Biden to serve as the new position, Indo-Pacific coordinator that we affectionately call the China Czar. We are so pleased, Kurt, and first of all, want to thank you for taking that on. I already feel safer. We are all better off for you agreeing to take on this service. Thank you. Aaron, it's a pleasure. And one of the things I've enjoyed the most over the last couple of years is having the opportunity not only to work with you, but to learn more about AI through your fantastic organization, Equal AI, which really is designed to not only identify areas of unconscious bias, but also to look at the ramparts of what are going to be technologies and capabilities that are going to define American life in the time ahead. So it's a thrill for me. I'm grateful to be with you, and I'm excited to explore these issues. We have overlap. It's This is an issue of collaboration, of competition in the Asia-Pacific region. So I'm grateful for this opportunity. So thanks. Thank you, Kurt. And you're so right. It's an area of really touches every industry. It's our competitiveness, it's our workforce, it's our education system, everything is tapped by AI and our ability to succeed in this front and in no small part, uh, our competition with China. And over the years, you've been known to employ highly effective diplomatic strategies, such as finding shared goals to foster collaboration among adversaries, and I'm wondering if any of those strategies could inform our approach to how we foster international collaboration, which we have, as you know, not been able to do recently, uh, but particularly when talking about regulations and norms in the tech space. Gosh, yeah, I thought you were going to go in a different direction with that question, Miriam. I, was, I thought you were going to say it won't be long till we develop an AI that could be a more effective diplomat than you. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's probably going to happen sooner than later. Is what I'm <laughs> so, so, you know, it's interesting. You know, the Asia Pacific is an incredibly dynamic area, Miriam, as you know, and it's going to be the defining region for the 21st century in so many ways, strategically, diplomatically, economically, but really the defining characteristic of the Asia Pacific will be in technology. And we're going to see it play out in a whole host of areas you know, robotics, human sciences, quantum computing, you know, 5G, semiconductors, and AI. All of these areas each involve very specific sets of capabilities and training. The truth is, not only is it difficult to find common ground in areas where, you know, people can coordinate in a way that, you know, avoid a Wild West sort of circumstance that we've seen, for instance, in cyberspace, But in fact, it's difficult in the sense that such a small number of people can even communicate 
about what are the specifics we're discussing. So you can get people to talk a minute or two about 5G or about AI. But if you stop that person and say, you know, go deeper, what exactly are you talking about? Which specific technologies and capabilities are you suggesting that we either moderate or surveil? People couldn't tell you. And so I think there is a preliminary step before even talking about issues about how to regulate, which is there is an education component here that the policymakers that are charged with working in these areas often have very limited guidance or understanding about what it is that they're affecting or seeking to affect. It's not dissimilar. It's This is a bad analogy, uh, Miriam, but during the Cold War, the dominant arena of competition was nuclear throw rates, you know, missiles and weapons. And the people who had the initial skills in that were military officers who had served in those arenas. And civilians were often cut out of the details because they didn't really understand some of the technological or military dimensions. Over time, those advantages were eroded. What we have now is a series of engineers often locked away in these incredibly entrepreneurial, interesting tech firms with very little association with the outside world that are making policy and technology innovations together, if you will, right? Right, right. It, it almost, it seems unfair that we've put them with the, given them the responsibility on their own to figure out problems that we have trouble establishing with the human race. What is fairness? What is just and right? So it's, we've put ourselves in a really challenging situations with the engineers taking this on, on their own. So one way, one path forward is for the regulators to help support that. You've recognized and, and noted that there are challenges there. Silicon Valley leaders such as Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella has said that the US, EU, and China need to together agree on a set of principles to govern AI technology. Do you think this is feasible? You know, right now, we have almost no strategic dialogue between the United States and China. We're struggling on a host of issues in the manifest world, on the South China Sea, on the India border, a lot of, you know, wolf warrior diplomacy in Europe. And, you know, it's clear that there are going to be areas where the United States and China need at least to align policies on existential issues like climate change, probably the tail end of the pandemic, nuclear proliferation. But there are also, as others have suggested, areas of technology quantum computing as well, that require a degree of coordination and at least self-regulating steps on how to interact and focus in these areas that, you know, have potential consequences that are, I mean, sometimes difficult to even imagine. So I like the idea of that. I will tell you that the level of distrust that currently exists between the United States and China is such that it might be difficult to convene such a meeting right off the bat. Mm -hmm. And I'm not really sure what form that discussion takes. Is it a EU, United States, and China, some sort of sit down more generally? Is it a exploration of the challenges? Is it a specific set of 
suggestions about what should be areas where each side commits to self-restraint? I'm not really sure. Mm -hmm. I do believe, though, that we are in a number of areas reaching technological ramparts that are such that require a much higher degree of of knowledge and recognition. So, you know, what what you liken it to in some respects is, you know, there's the famous Einstein letter in the 1940s at the start of the Second World War when he and a group of physicists went to Roosevelt in the White House and said, look, we think we understand a technology that would split the atom that could have untold consequences in terms of weaponry. We believe that the Germans are also understanding of this technology and we have to begin a process uh, for the sake of mankind to, to explore this. Very careful effort that led to you know the Manhattan Project. Um, that's high level engagement around a technology that was ferocious, poorly understood, but potentially of life or death magnitudes. The AI technology, I think what you've helped me understand, Miriam, and your organization, I I think most people do not really appreciate and understand how pernicious, that's the wrong word, but how much AI affects every element of our lives. And so I think one of the challenging things is that a relatively small number of people truly appreciate how pervasive uh, this technology has become and will be over time. And that if not greater safeguards, oversight employed, then the chances for misuse and replication of certain problems along the lines that Equal AI have identified, those risks remain very real. Well said. Couldn't have said it better. The potential harms are magnificent, extraordinary. I think uh, something beyond what we've seen uh, in in recent history, anyhow, if not world history, uh, if this isn't handled appropriately, both in terms of the harms that could be realized by us missing the discrimination that could be propagated by AI systems without our knowledge, let alone the harm of the all-powerful technologies getting in the wrong hands. But there's also an opportunity here for innovation, improvement, you know, perhaps this terrible phenomenon that has overtaken the globe with COVID could prevent, could provide some opportunity for uh, silver linings, such as uh, an opportunity to connect with world leaders on our shared interest in, in moving forward. And maybe that can be one of the paths forward to start this line of communication, and perhaps AI could be a beneficiary of that line of communication. Miriam, I like that. And I think there will be a recognition after COVID. I mean, it's hard to see it now. I mean, we were just talking about, you know, as we record this, we're in the midst of, you know, a set of dire circumstances domestically in the United States that we wouldn't have imagined a year ago, you know, three to 4,000 deaths a day, a day, right? It's, you know, it's, it's almost numbing to us now. I do think the recognition though, as we hopefully approach the end of this or not the end of this, because I think COVID is going to be with us probably forever, but is a recognition that some of the biggest challenges that we face really 
defy borders, defy crackdowns, defy, you know, travel bans. And they are pernicious. They are across the board in technology and the like. You know, I'm interested from your perspective, what do you think are the specific steps like on AI that countries and companies should be taking right now? Are these things, is it an awareness campaign? Is it a monitoring campaign? Are there formal restraints that you can imagine? Everything I've heard suggests that primarily what is involved is a degree of education that when you point out to engineers or other designers that this is how your bias is inadvertently exported or imported into your technology and your coding, that's fascinating. And, and I think that has been helpful. But I wonder, Miriam, in your view, what else, I mean, beyond just sort of awareness, what do you think are the important steps that should be contemplated? Our task ahead of us is much greater than we even imagine, because it's not just understanding that humans have bias, which is uh, hard enough for people to recognize, but it's understanding all the various human touch points throughout the AI lifecycle where our human bias can embed in the AI system. So from those envisioning what the product is, what imagining what problems they want to solve to imagining what that solution would look like, there will be implicit bias. For instance, if you're imagining what kind of patients you want to treat or what kind of hiring system you want to create, you're going to have an answer in mind that will have inherent biases in that. That does not mean it cannot be fixed, but it means that you need to recognize that you might have missed things along the way and have checks along all along the path of an AI system development to guard against that through the data collection, through the development, through the testing phases. But you're right, there has to be more than awareness. Uh, I think there are some tools, AI tools that are being created now that will be helpful in addressing this problem. Uh, But AI cannot alone be the solution because it's a constantly iterating program. So AI is constantly learning new patterns and as it gets new data, uh, it will constantly evolve and potentially have different and and more pervasive types of discrimination that are embedded. And so we have to have checks in place. We have to have companies committing to doing this work. We have to have policymakers that understand that this is an area where they need to step in and clarify which laws on the books are applicable to AI, which laws we need to create better protections as we move forward in AI. And we need lawyers to step up and advise clients on uh, how their corporate clients are making steps. They need to advise their clients on the best path forward on issue spotting where the potential liabilities are so that they can avoid harms and that they can create the innovative works that they really are hoping to. You know, it's interesting because of my good fortune of working with you in Equal AI, I've had an opportunity to talk with some of the engineers and people that work on this. I had a chat with someone at Harvard a couple of weeks ago, and he said a really interesting thing. He said, as AI really develops, the interesting potential application of AI is that computers and machines will say, you know, I don't really want to deal with the human. I prefer to deal. They will develop their own AI 
and that they will prefer to deal with a more predictable counterpart, another machine, another technology, as opposed to an interface with the United States. It's just uh, with a with a with a human being, kind of an interesting thing. Yeah. I, I do want to ask you, you know, when we were talking about the idea of a common pursuit and limitations and constraints, you know, one of the things that's gotten the most attention in China, Miriam, is a you know combination of technologies that have been applied in certain places, which are basically the application of facial recognition and AI databases, you know, taking pictures of people that are moving through train stations and the like with the desire to try to be able to spot on someone's face, whether they're in deep anxiety of some kind, i.e. contemplating something horrible against the state. Those sorts of things really frighten people. It is almost Orwellian. And, you know, you think of your person as being like, you know, if you're if you're not talking on, on a phone, that you at least are able to contain yourself and what your you know internal thought process are. There's something about that application or set of applications that is deeply troubling to people. And the idea that those capabilities could be used to potentially find and screen people in advance that could be more you know interested in committing acts that are you know against the state per se what do you do about something like that uh Miriam in your view that's a great question uh, obviously uh one that we're watching out of China but we're watching in our own home turf here yeah. understanding on the one hand that facial recognition has limits on the other hand, with the recent attack on the Capitol, we understand that they're using it to identify people that wouldn't have been identified otherwise. So it has its limits, it has its benefits, like all forms of AI. I think the critical point is recognizing what those limits are and not pushing it beyond its capabilities. It's mm-hmm. keeping humans involved in the process. It's making sure that we don't let these machines talk to machines uh, and, and decide on outcomes without human involvement all the and all the significant steps along the way to ensure that they're understanding the recommendations and that they're monitoring it before they become outcomes. Yeah, it, it's interesting. You know, I have, you know, been able to imbibe that logic, having the chance to work with you, Miriam, the idea that at every juncture, at every stage of development, there should be a human role. And I like that for a variety of reasons. In some respects, it's just comforting to humans, the idea. No, it, it really is, if you think about it. Like, like I'll give you an example. There, there, are, there are debates, for instance, as people think about advanced military capabilities. Some are imagining, you know, certain capabilities that, that you know, basically robots will fight in the future. Others are saying, well, like, no, we can enhance human capabilities, but you want humans always involved in every element of the decision per se. And I I wonder, I do wonder whether over time, all of those, I think, logical and wise calculations will be followed. I I wonder if there might be some circumstances where you'd say, no, we want, you know, computers to be handling this or, you know, uh, elements without human oversight or intervention. I know it's difficult to think about, but I can imagine circumstances where that might play out accordingly, right? Absolutely. Well, and to that point, as you take on this role and think about how 
AI can be used for good and how the U.S. can step up and, and be ready to lead on this front. Uh, as many listeners know, the Chinese government has set a goal of making China the world's leader in AI innovation by 2030. And the U.S. is still the leader in the world's AI discoveries, but China is now the leader in AI implementation. And you've historically urged Washington to invest in growing industries such as AI, in addition to biotech, clean energy, and other areas, as the main battleground between these two superpowers. So in addition to doubling down on U.S. research, I wonder what else you think the Biden administration should be doing to maintain U.S. leadership in AI? Look, it's, it's a great it's a great point, Miriam. And I will say, and again, I learned this through working with you, the barriers of entry at the highest level in these technologies and capabilities, it's hard. It's a huge amount of capability, training, but also quite a lot of money and technology associated with this. I wonder, you know, this is a field that is dominated by just a very small number of actors, at least the real cutting edge innovations. I'm curious, I, my general proposition would be to take steps to encourage more competition, more engagement, more support for smaller firms. I do also think that there are arguments for public-private partnerships, but some of these companies are hardly in need of help from the federal sector. So I, you know, I think the model for how this should go forward is still unrefined. And I, you know, I'm curious what you would say back to that question. What's the best way to still lead in terms of innovation and staying ahead without subsidizing or you know, basically leading to monopolistic activities on the part of just a couple or one companies that are deeply involved in this sector? Well, I think you're right that there needs to be a multifaceted approach. I think there are both easy lifts, but also very significant changes that will be needed to ensure that we are able to reach our full capacity in, in innovation with AI and other fields. Part of that is ensuring that our AI is made by and for a broader cross-section of the population. And so that will require education. I think that requires us looking at our K through 12 and thinking about what skills are we teaching them and how are we serving our students as they join the workforce or, or grow as people and use AI systems. Uh, that's an area that we want not only the skills to be provided, but the awareness. We want educated consumers who understand the power of the technologies that they're relying on every day. So Miriam, you've talked a lot in the past about the necessary steps that this is something you just can't invest in at the very late stages. It's not just graduate school. It's not just you know programs associated with very, you know, kind of advanced university labs and the like, that this requires a commitment in STEM from the earliest stages. In your view, if you were to design a perfect curriculum, and obviously you'd want it across socioeconomic and gender barriers, how would you do it? What would you say is most effective? I think one first step is translating for students, for kids, how AI is a part of their everyday, how the roadblocks in Minecraft uses coding to create systems that they enjoy uh, or that their parents use for social media, navigation, uh, et cetera. So I think part of it is demystifying the huge word that seems to be artificial intelligence 
and having kids understand from an early age that this is something that they use and that they can be a part of. Part of it is making sure that there are not doors closed by kids of color, by young women who too often at an early age, when they're defining who they are, will say, I'm not a math person. I am a soccer person. I am, et cetera, fill in the blank. I think we underestimate how early that happens. And we need to make sure that we get in there before they close that door and they understand math is a part of your life. You know, STEM is a part of your life. It's not these, these new categories that we want to introduce you to. It is part of your life that we want you to own. It's interesting, Miriam, again, largely because of my good fortune of working with you, I find myself in way at times when I least expect, I reflect on some of the things that I've learned through working with you in this area. So there's a fantastic show on HBO, which basically looks in the 1990s, which is this, this period, you know, in which the effectiveness of computers and AI is finally is fundamentally demonstrated with the you know the chess match between Deep Blue and the greatest chess player at least of modern times and this this match as it plays out just grueling and the engineers behind the scenes trying to work on Deep Blue so that it understands what's happening as Kasparov maneuvers and such. It's a great way to help people understand, and that that's a that's a case study now that's you know almost twenty five years old. I'm told that even the most basic applications of AI can now basically play a you know auditorium full of chess players without any problems at all. That this is how far the capabilities, and those are just simply technical capabilities, but the kinds of things that you've helped us understand that you know, how someone looks or how you're reviewing medical data, how that can inadvertently lead to conclusions that are biased by by race or gender are fascinating. I think the key is this early helping people to understand deeply and almost viscerally how integrated these technologies are into our daily lives in ways that we're not always familiar with and at the same time, at how rapidly those capabilities are taking off. And, you know, you can sit and watch debates about whether this approximates human thinking. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the debates about this are so refined now that it's hard to tell what's really kind of learned, mimic, you know, kind of adaptive programming and what's really very close to human learning, right? Right, right. Uh, But I think you're right that we need to demystify it. We need to make it approachable, make it a part of more people's understanding, education. We need to bring people into the fold, both because we need them to be educated consumers, but also because they are going to be part of a tech economy where they're going to need to have a role that is somewhat supporting tech, uh, not all as computer science or engineers a variety of different positions, they need to feel connected to it and not alienated from this system that is going to be driving a lot of their daily functions. Miriam, can I ask, you know, your organization has drawn a lot of interest and support across the realm, you know, both political people, technologists and the like. I, I guess my question to you 
is, are we approaching a point, and I know this is a very hard question to answer, where it's too late, where it's just too hard to regulate or put in place procedures? Or do you imagine that at every step along this trajectory that, you know, you still can take steps? Or is time, you know, beginning to run out with respect to putting in place the kinds of things that will necessary that will be necessary to assure a degree of stability here? So the short answers are yes, no, yes. In in order <laughs> the reason uh, we have a podcast is that there are no short answers. <laughs> well, there is no short answer here, Kurt, certainly with that question in particular. Mm-hmm. We are excited in Equal AI to be working on this issue right now because we do think we are at a pivotal cross-section. We are at this fork in the road where AI is far enough along in its development that we see its power and we know some of the potential dangers, but we're not so far along that we can't adapt and control for some of them, if not all of them. I think uh, I say, yes, it will be too late uh, if we wait, but right now we do have this opportunity as the AI is being built, as the systems are still underway, as the workforce is being developed, as students are adapting to technologies, as we're all adapting to these technologies. We have the opportunity right now to make sure there are guardrails in place so that companies know what do they need to be checking for if they want to be a good actor, if they want to avoid harms. That's what the the policies and laws are for, to help establish what's the checklist, what are the guardrails that they need to be mindful of as they navigate and create these powerful technologies. They need their lawyers to be primed and ready to help answer these questions of what are the potential liabilities down the road? You know, five years from now, when we see more litigation play out, it'll be too late because, as you know, many of these AI systems will be too well integrated and iterated beyond their initial input. And it will be extremely hard, if not impossible in some cases, to scale back and rein in what's been created. So we are at this time where we can have impact, where we can be asking companies to do the right checks to make sure that they are doing this safely. All that is to say, this is this is the pivotal moment for all hands on deck to be asking these questions and to help them answer because they can't answer for themselves what are the appropriate guardrails for our society across societies and nations. And they, they can't be answering for themselves beyond their training as well. We have to be, you know, as you mentioned in earlier discussions, we right now have so much of this in the hands of the engineers to solve these problems that they weren't trained to solve. So we also are at a point where we can ensure that there is a diversity of thought and perspective uh, in answering these questions and in designing these technologies. Miriam, that's a good answer. Let me ask you this. So I'm just out of curiosity. So you have all these interactions with CEOs, with tech titans, with with engineers and stuff. How many times do you have a conversation with someone who really, in your view, on your issues, on the things that matter on equal AI, get it? Like really are woke and understand the nature of the problem? And how often do you find people, you know, in a second camp that are interested, but generally largely clueless about like, oh God, I hadn't really thought about that. So to put those, you get two camps, you, you can't choose a third, you got to divide people in one of the two. How would you 
you know, in, in your important role as the CEO of Equal AI, where would you stack people up? And I guess there's the third group that doesn't have a clue that I'm in, but let's let's do the first two, all right? Certainly not. So I have the good fortune to talk about this every day, to talk with people every day about bias in AI, avoiding discrimination, enhancing innovation through creating better, more inclusive AI. So throughout each day, frankly, I have conversations with like-minded people who understand that this is something that is on us at this moment to impact and to uh, step in and try and help set the right course. Uh, and it, you, you don't always know who those people are going to be. They come from all different types of fields. They can be lawyers, they can be college students, they can be academics, uh, they can be physicians. So I think there is not a job title or an experience that I have found consistent in those who truly understand the power and potential harms of the AI programs that we're building now. On the other hand, uh, I have conversations every day where people either don't understand this as an issue at all or don't understand the magnitude. So for instance, they might understand that uh, they've read about AI in hiring systems and how that can propagate bias based on data. And they understand that the data that we feed AI systems can be embedded with historical biases and therefore make recommendations that are themselves biased. What they don't understand is that that also carries over into every other field where AI is being used and it's being used in almost every field. So I don't know if there's a significant recognition of the potential harm in the healthcare space in particular. So while there's so much AI innovation in healthcare, again, as one example, there is also the greatest amount of harm. There's potential life or death if people aren't recognizing that there are limitations in applying the data set without checking it for biases, that there are limitations in removing humans too far and not asking the right questions, uh, keeping them close to the development and understanding that these questions of bias and discrimination need to be imposed at each human touch point, the design, the development, the data entry, the coding, the testing stage at the end. So as you say, there's, there's uh, no short answers on podcasts. I, I could go on and on and exceed the length of podcasts. Uh, I think all of us, frankly, are still learning more every day about the potential innovations and benefits of AI, as well as the potential harms. And, and Miriam, if you were to look forward and you asked yourself, like, you know, what were the things that this organization, this important new organization, Equal Eye, would, would want to accomplish? Is it you simply want to raise awareness? Is it that you want to, you know, basically come up with almost a national standards approach, almost like a good housekeeping for AI? That's another approach. Or even further, do you seek to play a role in helping the United States work with other countries. What is as you go forward in this incredibly rich, sort of diverse set of challenges? What are your ambitions for the near term and the medium term, at least? So again, I'll start with a short answer: yes, yes, and yes, <laughs> and then to to play that out a little bit. So you know, again, we cannot underestimate the need for awareness. And for continued learning, as we're all understanding AI and the potential harms and benefits and where bias can be embedded and hurting us from realizing its full potential. We also work with lawyers. We also work with lawmakers. We have three main areas of focus. 
we focus on helping companies understand this challenge and create better AI governance systems so that they can do this work to the best of their ability on their own. We work with lawmakers because we know that we're all counting on them to establish the right guardrails so that companies know the rules of the road and can follow it. And we work with lawyers. That's probably my bias as a lawyer that I think that we should have a role in this, that I think that we're not playing enough of the role we are expected to. We are the advisors to our corporate clients. We are intended to issue spot for them, potential harms and liabilities. And AI is certainly an area where we need to do our job and point those out. Let me stop you on that, Miriam. And I do, I, I do realize that, you know, if we've got a hammer, there's a lot of nails out there and, and, <laughs> and lawyers love to find a way. I, I'm curious, you know, has any company found themselves in a situation where they had to say, look, we didn't do it, but this AI that we didn't really understand did it, so we shouldn't be blamed for it? Or have, you know, companies had to try to, you know, defend their AI in, in a variety of situations, whether it be bias and applications and the like, what's the legal dimension of this? You know, how how's it played out to date, if you will? At the moment, the field is quite nascent. There's been some application of laws on the books to AI, but I expect there will be a significant uptick in the coming years. I expect it to be an entire cottage industry, frankly, of lawyers looking at the liability from AI and many of those liabilities stemming from the biases embedded in the AI systems. So to date, we've seen some litigation in the hiring space. We've seen a few instances where companies have been able to distance themselves from the outcomes because they're relying on AI. However, as our legal system and we all become more sophisticated, we'll be able to better understand how current laws on the books are applicable and create liabilities based on outcomes that we're witnessing today and we'll be certainly seeing in the years to come. And there's also going to be more laws on the books. As you know, uh, lawmakers in the U.S. in particular have not been highly regarded in their communication on technology thus far, but we work with many members and their staff who are quite sophisticated and who understand that this is their responsibility to figure this out and, and to establish the right laws so that our AI can be fully beneficial, as beneficial as possible, and and reducing some of the harms that we're seeing and that we'll continue to see. The last question that I have is, do you imagine a situation where, you know, I I hate to to harken back to uh, movies and popular culture, but in a you know, prescient movie many, many years ago about, you know, there is a, there is a concept of a replicant, a a human being that's, and and they take them through a series of questions and tasks to figure out whether this is a computer or a human being, you know, artificial life or not. Do, Do you believe that at some point along this trajectory, that artificial intelligence will be inseparable or, uh, you know, that cannot be, you know, kind of differentiated and made out in comparison to human intelligence? Well, we know that Elon Musk is working on putting the chip uh, in the brain. A few companies are leading in this space. And um, I know better than to doubt Elon Musk on anything he sets his mind to. So I do think there will be more seamlessness as time goes on between our our 
interactions, our decisions, and the AI supporting those functions. I do think it will become more and more seamless in ways that we cannot imagine today. I cannot imagine that there will not be a human role, particularly if we ensure at this pivotal juncture that humans do become distinct and the ultimate decision makers, particularly when it comes to pivotal outcomes, when you're talking about healthcare recommendations or allocations, when you're talking about hiring decisions, which impacts someone's life and trajectory and their family tremendously. So I think it will become more seamless, but I also think we're at a point when we can ensure that humans are the ultimate deciders in these pivotal consequential decisions. We like to end by asking, what's the rose of what you're looking forward to, the thorn of what you fear most, and the bud of what gives you inspiration when we're talking about AI? Oh, that's really interesting. So the rose is a a technological small elite that get way out in front of social norms, popular understanding, and take initiatives that are detached and and alienated from broader humanity. And that's hard to completely describe, but I think we'd, we'd recognize it if we saw it, right? So that would probably be the thorn. The rose is the fact that an organization like Equal AI exists and a person like Miriam Vogel and has assembled such a sensational team to try to address these challenges before we're able to really address them more generally. And I think the bud, um, I don't want to get personal, but you and I both have young daughters who are more I won't speak for you, but certainly my daughter, more technologically proficient, more interested in in STEM and coding than many of the boys around them. And that, with the encouragement of strong women like you, Miriam, and my wife, Lil Brainerd, I think we can have hope that these fields that have been dominated in the past by a certain group of people will be opened up. And in that process, we have a better potential goal of achieving balance in both design and outcome. I love that answer. Thank you so much, Kurt, for ensuring that we launch this podcast with such a distinguished speaker uh, for helping to ensure that we created it all. I know how much you supported this medium. Thank you. And thank you for being such a great friend, both to me and to Equal AI. Thank you. Go, Go forth and do well. You have just listened to In AI We Trust, hosted by Miriam Vogel from Equal AI and me, Mark Kane from the World Economic Forum. Subscribe to or download our podcast at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Play. We always welcome your feedback, and if you like the podcast, please rate us or give us a review. And to learn more or get involved, please visit us at www.equalai.org and www.weforum.org. And a special thanks to Alex Pena and the NP Agency for their great work and their generous production of this podcast.